Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Thank you, Coop. I am Chris Cuomo and welcome to Primetime. Today is Giving Tuesday. I ask you to reach out in any way that you can because the need out there is great. And I have two important items to give to you. First, breaking tonight. We've just learned who may get the first access to a life-saving COVID vaccine. A CDC advisory panel voting a short while ago, 13 to 1, to recommend healthcare workers and residents of long-term care facilities be the first in line to get the shots when the FDA, FDA authorizes one for emergency use. That may be later this month. Now, the single vote against the recommendation came from a doctor concerned vaccine effects hadn't been studied yet in residents of long-term care facilities. Only one vote. But concerns about the vaccine's safety and readiness are shared by many in this country. Most measures say we're about split on taking the vaccine, so there's work to do on proving the safety. However, for those anxious for prophylaxis, according to Operation Warp Speed in a document obtained by CNN, the first shipments of Pfizer's vaccine for FDA consideration will be delivered on December 15th. And the Moderna vaccine's estimated delivery is December 22nd. That's just two and three weeks away. But it will be many months before we have enough herd immunity to make that vaccine really work. The period between now and then could be the worst of this pandemic. Cases are only growing. More than a million new cases per week. More than 2,300 deaths. That's from today. 2,300 in a day. Do you remember when 1,000 seemed unimaginable that we had that many. Now it's more than double that. So forget your fatigue. Face the reality. The worst is likely yet to come. What do we need? Leaders and money. We need people to be told the truth. That's leadership. They have to be given tests and resources to stay safe. That's money. But most of all, they need cash in their pocket to survive the rest of this pandemic. Can you believe Today was the first meeting between lead negotiators on a relief bill for you since October. Shame on them all. We pledge on Cuomo primetime. We will stay on this process soup to nuts. Most importantly, not just the big developments, the spaces in between. Who is resisting and on what basis? Is it a good argument or is it a bad one? This will be a platform for them to make the case to you because it matters. Here's the latest offer from the Senate. Nine hundred and eight billion. That sounds humongous, but it doesn't include a second round of stimulus checks. Why? We have one of the key senators behind the plan in a moment to make the case. One good sign is that our president is no longer just tweeting about hunger and poverty in passing. And by president, I mean president-elect Joe Biden. He is directly pushing Congress to make a deal while unveiling his economic recovery team earlier today. The full Congress should come together and pass a robust package for relief to address these urgent needs. My transition team is already working on 
what I'll put forward in the next Congress to address the multiple crises we're facing. Our message to everybody struggling right now is this. Help is on the way. The scale and the scope is the biggest we've seen since the Depression. And I argue to you, the motto of that time, of the New Deal, applies every bit as much as today. Do you remember it? Relief, reform, and recovery. Families need money in pocket in addition to programs. That's the relief. We do need to reform the response to this pandemic. Testing, figuring out the best way to keep our kids in school. It can't be that one class is shut down by one case. It doesn't make sense. There has to be a better, smarter way. Nobody's even talking about it. That must be reformed. And then and only then will we be able to start recovery once the vaccine cuts the spread. Now, what does this take? Well, it takes a deal. Can there be a deal with the party of Trump? Re-Trumplicans like McConnell still won't acknowledge that Biden will be president in just 50 days. He literally refused to do so again today and also said this. We don't have time for messaging games. We just don't have time to waste time. How does he say it with a straight face? That's the part I admire. How? He has done nothing but slow walk the relief, and he knows it. He's told people there would be no deal. And then with a straight face, he just lies to you. Remember, remember who did and did not do what mattered in this moment. Now, our second big development today may remind McConnell that he was once a man, not just a mannequin. That development is that, as we saw in The Lion King, the hyenas are starting to circle President Scar, the attorney general who just weeks ago lent credence to the ballot BS that Trump is conning you about. And be clear, that will be a big part of Trump's legacy. Okay, with this con job to sabotage this transition, that may solidify his place as arguably the greatest American president we've ever had. Now, however, even Barr is trying to re, what would you call it? Maybe resurrect a modicum of moral leadership. He told the AP today, there is no evidence to support the widespread fraud lie. No evidence that could have changed the result of the election. Again, Attorney General B. Barr, defender par excellence of this president and every bit of piffle that comes out of his mouth, says no evidence of fraud that could have changed the election. Do you hear that? On the same day that Barr said that, a judge forced his Department of Justice to tell us something else that had been keeping quiet. They are investigating allegations of people seeking to bribe their way into pardons. That comes out just as we hear that Rudy Giuliani and others are asking for exactly that. Pardons. Question is, for what? Talk about a guilty conscience. There's not even an investigation yet. You want a pardon? And you're telling me everything you do is legit, but you want a pardon? The New York Times is reporting tonight that along with a potential Giuliani pardon, Trump has discussed with advisors whether to grant preemptive pardons to his kids, Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric, and also to his son-in-law, Jared. What does that say? That he wants to excuse them for things before anybody's even saying there's an investigation. Now, bad news for Trump translates into good news for the drama finally ending around this transition. 
so we can now finally focus on the pandemic that Trump has all but ignored. What do you say? Let's get after it. For more on the breaking vaccine vote from the CDC, let's bring in former CDC acting director, Dr. Richard Besser. Good to see you, Doc. Good to see you, Chris. The priority going 13 to 1, health care workers and nursing home recipients. That second group knew. We had been told hospital workers, essential workers, then the medically fragile, then them. So what do you think of those first two decisions? I, I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, I have uh, uh, worked with the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, this group that advises CDC on, on immunizations and who should get them. Uh, and as a pediatrician, I've always looked to them for guidance. W- what they've done here in selecting these two groups, the first, looking at healthcare workers. Uh, we need to make sure that our healthcare workforce is safe in order to take care of all of the people who are, who are coming down with COVID and all of the people with medical issues unrelated to COVID who, who need care. Uh, in addition, if you look at, at who has borne the, the greatest burden in terms of, of mortality, 40% of the deaths during this pandemic have been uh, among people in long-term care facilities. Mm-hmm. So th- one of these is, is helping keep society going, keeping our healthcare system going, and one is addressing the issue of, of who is dying from this pandemic. You know, it's interesting. One of the 14-person uh, panel, one doctor said, uh, we don't know enough about how this works on old people. To you. They are right. Uh, We haven't seen testing of any vaccine that we know of on that population. Is a reservation warranted? Well, you know, normally, Chris, what would happen is the FDA would do their work first. They would review all of the data coming in from from industry. Then their advisory committee would look at the report from FDA and make a decision. Do we license this or not? In which groups are we going to are we going to license this vaccine? And then CDC would do their work, the, the their advisory committee. They've reversed that here because states need to know. Look, vaccine is likely going to be coming soon. We don't know for sure that these are going to get approved, but there's a good chance they will. Who should get that? And so that's what happened here. It may be in the work that FDA does that they're able to look and say, well, look, when, when we look at these, these studies, they gave the vaccine to X thousands of people over a certain age. We think that this will be good in that population. Or they could come back to the companies and say, we really want you to conduct additional studies among medically fragile people in long-term care facilities. Okay, so uh, let's but, say, you know, yeah. Let's say they do the due diligence the right way. It rolls out, it's fine. Now, let's take it a step deeper uh, than we've seen in the coverage of this headline moment about the decision. And that is, okay, so that's what the federal guidance is. Now you get to the state level. And I did some digging around in the tri-state area area here, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, because you've had so many cases here. They may well not get enough doses. The expected 40 million doses this month, that's enough to immunize 20 million people. Remember, you got to divide every number because you need two shots here. Um, That won't be enough to cover the estimated 24 million healthcare workers and nursing home residents in phase 1A. So just because we've been given a determination by the CDC who gets it doesn't mean you can fulfill the entire population. What kind of onus does that put on states? What kind of choices will they have to make? They're going to have to make tough choices and because there clearly will not be enough vaccine to, to reach those two highest priority groups. 
States have been working on this now that they know the recommendation from the federal government. It is only a recommendation. There's nothing legally that, that binds them to that. But as we've seen throughout this pandemic, there's been a desperate need of leadership from the top in terms of recommendations. So this will give them work in terms of planning. One of the critical things, I, I, I serve on the Restart and Recovery Commission here in New Jersey. Uh, they're talking about the importance of equity and making sure that as you look at distributing vaccine to, to people in healthcare or people in long-term care facilities, are you going to be making sure that it's getting to communities of color that have been hit so right. incredibly hard by this pandemic? Or is it going to be uh, you know, to those healthcare facilities in the wealthier neighborhoods, those that are, have better connections? We're going to have to keep an eye on that. And that won't be easy. We're going to need state consideration. This is going to be a big reporting job, um, this vaccine. And, you know, on the initial level, I understand Operation Warp Speed is legendary uh, in terms of the speed of doing this and the commitment by government putting the money up front when it could have failed um, was a ballsy move uh, to use indelicate language for an indelicate situation. However, there are complaints that the FDA is taking too long uh, to approve the vaccine since Pfizer applied for their EUA, their emergency use authorization on November 20th. What do people have to understand about the timing of authorizations? Well, you know, the, the naming of this as Operation Warp Speed uh, may, may have been a, a challenging name because a lot of people are concerned that things are going too fast. Too fast. And right. one of the things about FDA is that they are known for doing due diligence and really carefully looking through data. A lot of com countries will take company data and just go with that on their approval. Here in the U.S., FDA scientists will do their own analysis of the data, and sometimes they don't agree. So we need to let FDA do this because you could end up with a vaccine being approved, but if people think the, the, the process has been politicized, no one's going to want the vaccine and it's not going to have any impact. We need FDA to look at it carefully. We need their advisory committee to, to let us know the honest truth. And if some people there feel there's additional data that are needed or if the companies are unable to show that they can manufacture these vaccines to scale in a way that's safe, then we have to go a little slower than we're currently going. Well, look, luckily, Trump didn't poison the vaccine the way he did masks uh, because this hasn't politi been politicized other than some people have misgivings about whether if Trump was behind it, you know, can we trust it? But this is more about the Operation Warp Speed and the FDA. And uh, we'll take that one step at a time based on the data, which leads us to the science. Now, in terms of the real challenges uh, going forward, the idea of, OK, and great, and then we'll just distribute it. I keep being told on the state level and even on the federal level, yeah, we give out about 80 million vaccines a year here for different things. So the government knows how to do things of a certain scale. But we've never done anything like this, Doc. What are the challenges that come front of mind? Well, you know, there, there are a number. These vaccines have storage requirements that are very different from the vaccines I give as a, as a pediatrician. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine requiring temperatures of minus 90, uh, requiring new technology to be able to, to move those vaccines uh, around in a way so that they stay effective. We're going to need to be able to track people to make sure that somebody who starts with the Pfizer vaccine gets the second dose in four weeks and it's the same vaccine. They're not mistakenly given the Moderna vaccine. And as you have a population that be, may be moving around, logistically, that's all really, really challenging. And it's some of the planning that states have, have to do. And then as this is going on, there are going to be more vaccines likely that come on market. How do you ensure that, that people are getting the right products? What happens if you get the first one and don't get the second one within the four weeks for whatever life brings? 
Well, you know, typically a company will be able to look at that because they'll have people in vaccine trials who, for one reason or another, only get one dose and you can look at protective levels. I would expect that with one dose, there's some level of protection. And then with a second dose, you get more protection that lasts longer. But that's one of those unanswered questions because of how fast these are being done and how short the, the period of follow-up is. Last question. One of the things I know FDA is going to ask for is following people who are in these trials you know, for many, many months, if not years, to look for longer-term issues and side effects and how long the protection lasts. Uh, how long the protection lasts, one question. The last question is, uh, how soon does it start working? Well, the, you know, the initial results, again, it's company data, so we'll be looking to FDA, but the initial results were showing protective levels uh, seven days after your second dose. Mm. So second there's dose. probably some level, yeah, second dose, there's probably some protection after, uh, after your first dose. But my biggest concern right now, Chris, is that people are hearing all this news and they're thinking we're out of the woods mm -hmm. and the vaccine release that may come means we don't have to do the things that are driving everyone yep. nuts, like wearing masks and, and, and keeping apart from friends and, and loved ones. And, it, it, you know, I, I hope it doesn't take pressure off Congress, because as you were saying before, if you're not putting money in people's pockets, if you're not extending you know, eviction protection and home foreclosure protection and keeping people's utilities on, you know, this pandemic will, will be an absolute, absolute uh, debacle this winter as more and more people get affected and they don't have the supports they need. Mm. Dr. Richard Besser, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. All right. A breakthrough on the horizon economically. How about that piece that the doctor was just talking about? Relief to millions of Americans. Remember, more people hungry and in fear of going hungry in this country than at any time since the Great Depression. Almost one in six of us, 50 million people. We have one of the senators behind the new bipartisan bill in the Senate. Not a sure thing, but Joe Man uh, Manchin, senator from West Virginia, wants to make the case. Next. We haven't seen anything like it in a generation. I can't believe it's not all that people talk about. Look at the number of people that are going hungry in America. I mean, how do you explain it? You can't pass it off as, oh, those poor people, you know, they don't want to work the way we do. It's not what it is. It's families that have been displaced by economic hardship from this pandemic all across the country. Red and blue states, white families, every color, every creed, people just like these. You just survive it. That's all I can say. You just have to survive it. I haven't been working since December. March. Me. Can't find a job. They cut, cut off my unemployment. We have kids and they don't know that we don't have money to support them. Failure as a parent, as a man, to know that you can't provide for your own it's family. It's like it. It's all of us. For the first time in too long, those elected to take care of the people that you see there are talking about doing something. That includes a word we haven't heard in a while, bipartisanship. You need two sides to make a deal in a culture that seems to reward opposition more than anything else. Can they get a deal done? Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia joins us now. Good to see you, Senator. Good to see you, Chris. How are you? Better than I deserve. Is it true that the lead negotiators here haven't talked since October? Well, I'm, I'm not going to speculate on what they haven't done or what's happened. Nothing has gotten done. We don't have anything in front of us 
And about three weeks ago, there was a group of us came together and said, listen, we're not going to go home during the Christmas break if we have to face the people who you said are hungry, having a hard place keeping a roof over their head, all the hardships they're going through. And we've committed ourselves to making a difference and changing things. So we started working. We didn't condemn or curse the darkness. We just said, let's start working, guys. Let's look at what the needs are. So this is truly an emergency relief COVID package. It's an emergency relief through April to April 1st. So December 1 through April 1st. And I think we're entering, Chris, in the most difficult, challenging times of this COVID pandemic than we've ever seen. So your party says, no, Joe, you're, you, we're only going to get one bite at this apple. And even though nine hundred billion dollars is a ton of money, uh, you know, to the rest of us, uh, you know, it's less than the White House offered in October. It's way less than the Democrats need. It doesn't have money for checks directly to families. It's not enough. And that's why there's only five of you behind this bill and not forty five. No, no, Chris, on the Senate side, we have we have about 10 senators evenly split. We have many more now that are coming on board that want to be involved in there. We need everybody. And this thing is really getting a lot of momentum because we looked at all of the critical needs we had. When you look at everything that people are going to be losing as of December, whether it be unemployment checks, food assistance, all the different types of support lifelines we've had, those are eliminated as of December. Now you tell me somebody in the right mind or someone that has a heart and soul can go home and they're responsible for making a difference and letting people be in that type of misery. We're just not going to do it. And if they're telling me that it's not enough, let me tell you, we're doing all that we can right now to find that middle ground and find the necessities we need. $908 billion is what this bill is. We have $26 billion for nutrition. And these aren't just the people that are on food stamps or the SNAP program. These are people that you've never seen in a food hunger line before, right. a food bank. Look at all the, I've been watching your, your show. You're showing lines and lines of people. Yep. And these are not your typical people that are going hungry. But why not checks to they families? They are hungry now. You did it last time. Why not checks to families? Well, that, that works here's well. the thing. No, no. Uh, and it might work again, but the only thing we're doing, <laughs> we're trying to get something that we can get everyone to agree on, which is the emergency needs we have right now. Joe Biden will be our president-elect. He'll be our president as of, June, of January 20th. And when that happens, he can come back and determine we need to do that. But right now, we're just trying to get things out the door. We've got our Republicans stuck around $500 billion repurposing the money that's not been spent from the first CARES package, about $560 billion. We're putting another $348 billion to it to make this work. And we have people having a hard time with that. Why wasn't the money spent? $300 billion is what it takes. $300 billion is take, was what it takes for an extension to the stimulus package as far as checks to everybody. Joe Biden might decide to do that. Right now, we're just trying to get a group of Democrats and Republicans that can meet the emergency needs of America. I hear you. Let, let me just go through what the needs are so I, we can understand it. You said there's a lot of money that hasn't sure. been spent. Why not? Well, basically, uh, there was $128 billion of what we call PPP money. Mm-hmm. That's a time Payroll right now protection. So we can re- Payroll protection. We'll reappropriate that. And we've put another uh, 100 and I think 160 or uh, we, the total amount will be 300 billion when we're done mm. back up to 300 billion. But you understand so what I'm asking, Joe? A lot of people say a lot of people say, hey, it was too hard to get that PPP. 
uh, that, you know, I tried to get online. I couldn't get online. The software didn't work. I couldn't get connected. I couldn't file it. So they never got the money. Um, so that need still exists. And now well, there's, there's a lot of people didn't, but a lot of people that did. Well, first of all, what we're doing, we're forgiving all loans of basically one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or less mm-hmm. will be forgiven. And next of all, what we're doing is we're changing the things that we know that we made mistakes. We saw uh, the problems that people had. Right. We saw the hardships they went through. We saw a lot of people getting money that really didn't shouldn't have gotten it. There's going to be We've fraud. About They're going to be grifters. A lot of the large corporations. Right. But, you know, the pain is right. real. So uh-huh. we're, we're basically trying. We're trying to close all those loopholes. Chris, we're doing everything we can to make sure the small, needy businesses. We've got restaurants that can't make it. Absolutely. You know, outdoor dining. You can't do outdoor dining in the north. True. It's too okay, cold. We're having that. We have a lot of people. We've got stages. We've got basically entertainment. They're yep. not going to make it. Not going to make we it. We can't wait till February, till Joe Biden comes in and trying to save us. We can't wait that Agreed. long. They won't. They won't make it. Agreed. One thing though, Joe, and you, uh, you know I respect you trying to get deals done and trying to be a fair broker, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. sleep altogether on the shame game because when you say this is an emergency, we have to get it done. That's true. But it's been an emergency for months. And, you know, the head of the Senate said, we don't have any time to waste. You know that he has refused to do anything on this. He slow walked it all along. Why is it an emergency now? Well, I understand. You know, 200,000 were dead, crazy unemployment, generational poverty. That wasn't enough. But now it's an emergency. Well, leading up to the election, everything was Trump, forget the pun, by politics. The election was coming up and everybody was playing, Okay, who does it help more? Who would it harm more? How can we blame somebody else? Maybe that's the way the politics were played. People's lives are at stake right now. We haven't done anything for quite a while. I think July was the last thing we did anything was the CARES package. And everyone's talked about we need more relief. Uh, All the economists have said it. Every bill that you've seen introduced since then, the House has passed three point two trillion, which was the Heroes Act. They accommodated and went down and adjusted to $2.2 billion. And then basically they got stuck. They were negotiating with Mnuchin in the White House. They were stuck at the one-eighth, this and that. Mitch McConnell put the Heals Act out at $1.1 trillion at the end of July. We, we are excused and go home for uh, August, which we should have never left here, mm-hmm. Chris. We come back and he starts over at $500 million. Now you tell me, he went from 1.1 to 500, and that's supposed to be in good faith? I don't think so. And nothing has happened since then. I know, that's why it's all bad faith. I've talked to to Chuck Schumer about this. Chuck says, listen, if you can get some people together, do it. We're running into an impasse here, but if you all can do it, do it. So I appreciate that, and we did. And we've got Republicans and Democrats truly, truly trying to get something done as quickly as we can before the Christmas break. So you got 10? We're just not going to go home. We're just not going home. Good. You shouldn't go home. They're going to tell you not to travel anyway. It'll be good. You'll be stay there and do something. But, uh, (laughs) Senator, I appreciate you doing this. You're right about the urgency. And I make you this offer. Uh, That's guaranteed. No need to counter. I will give you a platform on this show every week until it gets done between now and Christmas to come on and just tell us the state of play. What's helping? What's hurting? What are the sticking points? So people know. Okay. Let me tell you this, Chris, for the last three weeks, all through our Thanksgiving break, we were on the phone five, six, seven hours a day trying to make something happen. We were trying to work through our differences. It was a, it was a mo- monumental task just to get to 908 billion. People are saying, well, it's too small. It should have been 1.2, 1.5. Mm-hmm. I know it should have been. Couldn't get there. Some people said, too much, should be at 500. It's not enough. 
You're not taking care of the people that are hungry. People that are losing basically their, their place of, of inhabitant. They're getting thrown out, eviction, mm -hmm. things of this sort. We're trying to bring all of this together to meet the truly suffering and needs of the people of America. Keep telling them. I think them. we've done it. Keep and telling we need them, Joe. more and more help. Keep telling them, Joe, because not having checks not is going to be a tough sell okay. on the left. The number is going to be a tough sell on the right. But keep telling them. Remember, you know, imagine it was your family. Imagine it was your family. Keep saying that to them, mm -hmm. and you'll have this platform every time you want it to tell us the state of play. Chris, Chris, we're not ruling the checks out. Hopefully, they'll come after Joe Biden's our president and leads us into a better time. Right now, we're just trying to get through the most challenging times this country has faced in many, many, many years. Well, on, on that, everybody can agree. Senator Joe Manchin, again, I will invite you on <laughs> every week to tell people how it's going. I'll come, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, sir, and be well. Look, you got to work all different uh, sides of this situation because you, you have to give the platform so that they can get the attention for what they're trying to motivate. That's okay. Somebody has a, a different deal, a better deal, doesn't like the deal. Come on, make the case because the status quo is killing us. You know, not enough money, too much money. People are hungry in this country. Also developing in Washington, an alleged bribery for presidential pardon scheme. Did Trump, someone try to pay off the White House? And why did a judge have to force this information out of the hands of the Department of Justice so the rest of us could know it. Former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara, next. Interesting bit of news. The Department of Justice was forced to tell you about something that is as troubling as it is timely. The DOJ is actively investigating a bribery scheme focused on obtaining a pardon from the president. A judge ordered the release of about 20 pages from the case. A lot of it is redacted, but this is a clear indication from the court that people need to know that this is afoot. What can we tell? There is a, quote, secret lobbying scheme and a bribery conspiracy that offered a substantial political contribution in exchange for a presidential pardon or reprieve of sentence. Let's dig into this with former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. One, Interesting that the judge wanted it out uh, when the DOJ wanted to keep it quiet. I thought that meant the case was over, but this has been going on since the summer. And how does this conflate or combine with what we're hearing about Rudy and Trump's plans for his own family? Well, I'd be surprised if they're directly related to Rudy. Um, you know, Trump has a relationship with Rudy Giuliani. He has other reasons, perhaps self-interested reasons, why he might want to give a preemptive pardon to Rudy Giuliani. This scheme that you're describing about which we know some stuff, but a lot of it has been redacted, as you said, uh, is, is on behalf of a person who needs to pay and needs to offer up some other incentive for the thing to get done. Um, look, it, as you see from the redacted document, the order from the judge, this thing was written in August, uh, on, I think on, on or about August 28th of this year. I think it's the case that because the uh, Department of Justice thought it was sensitive and it related to people who have not yet been charged, and perhaps, I don't know, because I haven't seen the motion to seal, perhaps because there was a concern that such a revelation in the days before the election would be bad in some way or violate traditional Justice Department policy, that convinced the judge to allow this to remain under seal. But I think the judge was just doing her job, and she's a very well-respected judge in D.C., Beryl Howell, uh, in making sure that in America, to the extent possible, unless someone's rights are being prejudiced or someone's right to a fair trial is being impeded in some way, that documents filed in court are public and get publicly known. So I wouldn't read 
more into it other than that she's doing her job as a person who's defending the openness of our courts. Right. Well, Barr all but pulled a Comey uh, during this election in terms of him saying he was opening an investigation right in the final weeks and days of it. So I don't know how sensitive they are about that. But what'd you make about his disclosures today? Uh, you know, this man has bent over backwards to protect the piffle that came out of Trump's mouth. And today he says, no, no proof of anything that is fraudulent that it would have changed the outcome of this election. He, he did two things today. So that's one thing he did which interestingly, it was a deliberate choice. He has to have known that the president was not gonna like it. You see uh, allies of the president are attacking Bill Barr all over the place because it's seen as a betrayal. This is the same man, Bill Barr, who on this network on CNN with our colleague, Wolf Blitzer, a few months ago basically said, I, I expect, because common sense tells me so, that thousands and thousands of ballots will be fraudulently filed and sent to the United States from abroad with no proof or evidence whatsoever and for him to say, in, in the face of what he knows the president wants and what the president's other lawyers are doing, Rudy Giuliani and, and et al., um, I think it's a deliberate thing for him to have done. And I think it tells you how weak the president's arguments are about fraud in all these states. The other thing he did, and I don't know if you, you want to get into it, was reveal for the first time, another thing that was secret before the election, that he has appointed uh, John Durham in Connecticut to be of special counsel status in connection with the investigation of the origins of the Russia investigation, giving him presumably some additional ability not to be relieved of that duty when the White House changes hands in January. Why? Why is he not able to be relieved? Well, it, I think it just makes it a little bit harder. I think people are still trying to figure out exactly if, if he did it correctly under the regulations. There's one regulation that appears to, to have been violated, which is that a special counsel is supposed to come from outside of the department. Of justice. Mm -hmm. um, that's what happened with Bob Mueller when he was appointed right, to be this guy's the, an employee. Uh, special counsel. Yeah, he was, he was outside the government. Um, I think there are ways in which you can do it this way. I, I haven't fully nailed down if it was a proper thing to do or not, but it just, it makes it a little bit harder if it was done appropriately. Uh, a special counsel is, is entitled to remain in, in office, to serve in the job, unless there's good cause to remove. And the attorney general would have to you know, give reasons, written, written reasons, to Congress and the public as to why that person's being removed. So it gives an extra measure of protection, right. presumably, in uh, Bill Barr's head with respect to John Durham, which is probably something that makes the president happy. Do me a, a favor. I, I don't have time, but I want to just a quick take. Is there an innocent reason to ask for a preemptive pardon? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a great question. Presumably someone like Rudy Giuliani, uh, who has disparaged his former office, also my former office, knows really well that the Southern District of New York, in its great tradition, he led it, you know, uh, well, once upon a time, is not going to bring some, as he calls it, BS charge that they can't prove or don't have a good faith reason to, to believe they can prove. And so someone like Rudy Giuliani, who knows that office and has been a lawyer for a long time and a prosecutor before that, has to understand that, that to have a need for a pardon, a preemptive pardon, must mean you feel you're in some jeopardy. And if he's doing that analysis and believing he's in some form of jeopardy, there's something to that. I mean, he knows what he's done and he knows what kind of peril he's in. And knowing those two things, if the reporting is correct, he is asking for a preemptive pardon, an extraordinary thing to ask for from the president of the United States. Mm. You know, do the math. Lucky for him, he's asking the right guy. Preet Bharara, thank you very much for the analysis. Thanks, Chris. These are remarkable times. And I keep saying hashtag remember because the names of these retrumplicans, it's not about hurting them. Save the threats and the shoot it and the go pull them out and shoot them. Save that for them.
okay? For the reasonable, I'm just saying if you want things to get better, you can't turn a blind eye to an outgoing president waging war and trying to sabotage democracy. So what's my job? How do we do this as an agent for you? Sam Donaldson, my mentor, he has lived through and covered all kinds of catastrophes. I don't know anything like this. Let's talk about the right way for us to do the job next. Some breaking news out of the White House tonight. Outgoing President Trump just held a Christmas reception during COVID. He doesn't care. Many attendees not wearing masks. That's going to be his legacy. Some were actually coughing, reportedly. That's not even the headline. That's, that's who he is. Now, what matters? Trump delivered this line to his guests. Quote, it's been an amazing four years. We're trying to do another four years. That's the sabotage the election con. Otherwise, I will see you in four years. Now, that's very important because even if hyperbolic, even if it's a tease, it gives you a window into why these retrumplicans are so afraid to say anything about his con that they all know is exactly that. So what do we do about it? Let's bring in legendary former ABC News anchor <laughs> Sam Donaldson. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Chris, as far as I know. A smart aleck answer would be in 14 days. We'll know. But as far as I know, I'm OK. Good. I'll take it. Um, so what are we to do after an unprecedented period of perfidy by people in this party where they sat silent? How do you cover that going forward? Well, you have to cover it the way the good reporters, uh, men and women, have done for the past uh, four years, increasingly toward the end of this Trump era. And that is call a lie a lie. Ask him why he lies. Ask him to explain it. Come be very aggressive. I was once known as aggressive. I was a pussycat. And I could be because the presidents I covered were gentlemen. They never said, at least to my face, you should be fired. You're a disgrace to your network. They may have thought it, but they didn't say it. And we both sides, the press and the presidents, knew what their roles were and tried to fulfill them. But the men and women who have had to deal with Donald J. Trump, they've had something as unprecedented in our history. I compliment each and every one of them. So give it to him and give it to his enablers. They've got to come to the Lord if this party, the Republican Party, is going to be reconstituted. And I hope it will be. But when you hear that uh, line from him tonight, I'll see you in four years. Doesn't that explain why we're going to be in just mired no. in opposition? We can't be. And first of all, I don't think he'll be back. Oh, he'll be back in the sense that he'll be talking. He'll be talking about the lie that he was elected this time and he was cheated out of it. And he may say, I'm going to run again. But don't you think that Tom Cotton, don't you think that Senator Hawley, don't you think that Marco Rubio, don't you think that all those young men of the party are going to say, oh, yes, we'll wait. No, no. Now, this Republican Party can reconstitute itself. I hope it is because we need two strong parties. But the first thing it has to do is cut its ties with Donald J. Trump. That'll be difficult because the Republican base is his base. So it has to be done delicately. But you've got to keep this man away from any influence from the standpoint of reconstituting a party, which should go back to its principles, fiscal integrity. Yes, the Republicans were very anxious to make certain we didn't spend too much money, particularly on a safety net, unfortunately. But they made deals with the Democrats and the Democrats made deals with them and they moved the 
country forward. And when Jimmy Carter left office, we had less than a trillion dollars of national debt. And what do you think's happened since? Both parties, but pr principally the Republican Party in power, has cut the taxes, and the tooth fairy is not available to pay for it, folks. You want highways, you want bridges, you want an air system, you want defense. You and I have to pay for it. It's called taxation. But no, the Republican Party has fallen in the way, but they're not interested in fiscal integrity. They're interested in, well, money for the rich. But Sam, don't and you see in McConnell's going so slow right now? Don't you see McConnell in his slow walking McConnell's right now and not wanting to do relief? Isn't that just a nod to not doing anything the boss doesn't tell him to do? I don't think so. I think McConnell is playing a very interesting game called Georgia, called let's get those two Republican senators back. If I don't get them both back, I'm no longer the majority leader. So that's one of the reasons he's not calling out Trump. He's not even acknowledging formally that Trump is the, not the president-elect. Uh, and the same thing goes for the stimulus. Now, you would think that McConnell would say if we have a stimulus bill that amounts to something, maybe people in Georgia will say, well, that Trump administration isn't bad. I, I should support these two senators. Uh, that would, might be my tactic, but then no one's asked me. I asked you because you are the man. Sam Donaldson, I need you back on this show on a regular basis so people can understand the right way forward, because that still matters, doing it the right way. I'll come when called. I'll come when called. Thank you, son. big brother. Be well. Be well. We'll be right back. Today is Giving Tuesday. More than 50 million Americans are going hungry. We haven't seen anything like it since the Great Depression. It's a struggle that we're seeing everywhere, all over the country, even in your backyard, even in mine. Let me show you something. In the very church where Christina and I got married, okay, in that basement is where Heart of the Hamptons does its work. It's a nonprofit organization in Southampton where uh, we got married, where we lived for so many years. Uh, volunteers work it, and they've been hit with waves of need, the likes of which they've never seen. This is what they do here. The food comes down the chute. I've sent food down that chute turkeys. They store all kinds of food, canned goods, and then they pack food bags for people. In 2019, they gave out 65,000 meals. As of this year, right now, they're already at 175,000. Just imagine how many more will need help in the coming weeks with the holidays. Along with food, they get loaded backpacks for school if they need them, clothes, utility assistance. These nonprofits are being stretched thin. And they need help from us so they can keep giving to others. The executive director for Heart of the Hamptons sent me a video. I want you to see the work they're doing. The music in the background, it's all part of their just keeping spirits up. There's so much of a need out here that um, we are having to purchase a tremendous amount of food. Previous to pandemic, we were serving about 350 um, unduplicated households. And then now we are serving 1100 so we've seen a 300 percent increase in demand for our services we have not had to turn anybody away that has come for food just yet so the important thing is that we need the funds to be able to keep up this pace for our community and the folks that are getting this food are not um you know toothless like homeless people or whatever it's everyday americans like us and we're all just one tragedy away from needing services such as that Heart of the Hamptons provides. And part of the reason that we don't 
um, have uh, photography or um, video of our food lines or drone images or whatever is because we live in a very small community. Sometimes it's hard for people to come here and we don't want to have one person think that we would exploit their need to be able to garner more support. So we really appreciate a video like this so that we don't have even that one person shy away from our services and suffer more. I love that. I love that. He wouldn't put people who come there on video. He doesn't want to play a shame game. He doesn't even want to play into that stigma. I love that. That's my brother from another, Hilton Crosby. Can't fish worth a damn, but because he's always working, doing God's work in our community. And I'll tell you what, there are people like him all over this country. So learn more about how you can help. You can go to their website, heartofthehamptons.org. I'll tweet out the link as well. Check it out on my social media. You can also visit the CNN Impact Your World page to find other ways to help, okay? That's at cnn.com slash impact. Remember, when you give, you always get more in return. Thanks for watching CNN Tonight with D. Lemon starts right now. D. Lemon and I live in the same community. We both know Hilton. Yeah. Um, Don has been a friend, but also uh, a helper for Heart of the Hamptons. Well, he's a good guy. Why do you want to call him out on his fishing? The guy is like a saint. I, I got to tell the truth, pal. <laughs> Here, this is what I have to say, because I talked to people about, I said, you know, um, the, there's a food uh, pantry out in, in the Hamptons and it needs help. And every time someone hears the Hamptons, the Hamptons or whatever, maybe you should just say Long Island. They think everybody's rich. It's all, you know, summer homes. That's not it. The people who run the communities are working class people. It's actually very red. I mean, Lee Zeldin is our congressman. congressman. Yep. Yeah. So it's not like we live in this blue enclave of all rich people. You know, I have one neighbor that is a, a, is a detective. I have no, one that's a landscaper. I have, you know, I have one that's, you know, does uh, homes. It, it's just, it's a working class, beautiful, beautiful community out there. Yeah, there are some very wealthy people, but there's some very wealthy in people. In the summer. In, in the summer, right. But there are some very wealthy people in a lot of communities. But as he said, these are not people who you would typically think, you know, even though I, neither of us judges that, are typical homeless people or, you know, people that you see on the street or what have you. I'm not judging people because everybody needs help wherever they, wherever they are. But these are working class people who have fallen on hard times because of the economy, because of COVID, or for whatever reason, reasons. The need is great. And you can see it all over. So don't judge, you know, people or a community or an organization by its zip code. Judge it by the need. And I think that's everywhere, all over this entire country. You and I are going to do something with, with Hilton. Um, we haven't figured out exactly what, but we know we're going to give. But we, I, want to do I something will give the money if you do the polar plunge. No. If you go into that water, I, and no. I, will, I will pay. Too cold. I can't swim. Then you have to pay. No, I'm kidding. Because I I'm not swim. paying... And going in the water. I'm not doing both. But look, if people want to question the need, all you got to do is give them the number. 175,000 meals this year. It's a small community. Go Google Suffolk County of New York and see the demographics of it and think about that need. And we got people in Congress who are just talking about maybe getting something done before Christmas. Are you kidding me? Yeah. The shame of our society right now, to me, is our biggest regret. My, um, I talked to my family in Louisiana, and they said the same thing is happening in my hometown of Baton Rouge. You came into my office earlier, and I said I wanted to do something uh, about that. There are other places around the country. Look, we'd like to help everybody, right? Um, but the need is really great right now. And you're right. Our politicians should be doing more, 
should, all of them, Republican and Democrat, should be doing more, and they should be working together. I had, you know, our friend on John Kasich last night. You know, John, we have an animated conversation, and sometimes people get it, and they don't. Sometimes they don't, but that's just that's our relationship. And we were talking about working how um, Joe Biden has, has got to go in and work with the other side. And my argument to John was that you got to go in and you got to represent the people of America. You don't have to go in, this is, these, this is my belief, saying, well, I'm going to work with the other side just to work with the other side. If you represent the people of America, those who voted for you and didn't vote for you, then the people who are in Washington who are obstructing, they're going to look bad if they're not trying to help out. If they're not trying to help the people who are in need when you're trying to do the right thing and you're putting um, the right bills and the right recommendations on the table in front of them and they simply don't want to do it, then they're going to look bad. So look out for the folks, for the people, rather than for the politicians. You don't have to work with them. Work with the people at home, the I'm, people who are in need. I'm with you. I think you have to do uh, deal direct with people because I'm telling you, these are not normal times. Even though it's a pandemic, yep. even though the hunger is so great, this Trumplican party, I call it that for a reason. They I call were, it the Trumplican. You put the re in there. I just well, call it the Trumplican Because it's repu- party. Republican. Republican. I got, I, All right, look, logic yeah. aside, what I'm saying <laughs> is that these people won't do anything yeah. unless they think it's okay with him. Yeah. And I think that means even ignoring COVID, even ignoring the hunger. Um, until I see differently, once I see differently, then I'll make a different assessment. But right now, they ignored the sabotage of a transition. They haven't done relief. Mitch McConnell had one number. He came back after a break, had half the number. And he's saying he's dealing in good faith. Now he says we have no time to waste when he slow walked it for weeks. There's a lot of shame in their game, D. Lemon. Yeah, Yeah, there is. Um, And here's what I'll say. I'll let you go. Help out wherever you can in your own community. When they say clean up your own backyard. So maybe that's where we start. And that's where everybody starts. So I'll see, you t- I'll see you tomorrow. You have a good night. Go put some Christmas lights up. And by the way, it's Clark Griswold. You didn't even correct me last night. Not Frank Griswold. Clark I was too embarrassed. Griswold. Gosh. Don Lemon, I love you. I know you do. You better. It's my <laughs> act of charity. This is. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.